The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This morning, I'm continuing to look at what I've styled as portraits of Christ. What number is this? Number 10, I think, or something like that, 11? Of uh, portraits of Jesus Christ in different ways shown in the Scripture. And, you know, the choices are, are so numerous of things that I'm not going to use that you'll say, well, why didn't you preach about his baptism? Or why didn't you preach about the Mount of Transfiguration? Or any number of things. Jesus in the temple at age 12, it's endless. I could have come up with 50 scenes that we could have looked at, but I've wanted to fix these things in your mind that perhaps as I retire, that if I did nothing else, you would say, that man wasn't the greatest pastor that could have ever been, but at least he showed us a great Christ a great Savior, and that's what I'm endeavoring to do. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, two chapters, both relatively short, but the text today is a little bit on the longer side, but I promise you the sermon on a communion Sunday is a little bit on the shorter side. So that's, that's something to achieve that I will strive for here. Let me read Revelation chapter 4 and 5, beginning at 4.1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. Seated on them were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of it were four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never ceased to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And in between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped our God. Help us, please, to capture some of the amazing splendor and joy and triumph that is here in your word that culminates in the Lamb who you sent to be conqueror. For his sake we pray. Amen. If I was not headed into retirement, I ask you to believe that I had an earlier plan drawn up for preaching throughout 2019 and into 2020 when I hoped I might retire. And that plan definitely included, in fact, number one priority, I think, in my mind, it included the book of Revelation, preaching a series on it. That probably disappoints some of you that I'm telling you I won't give it to you can't give it to you, but I'm not the first to have slighted this great book of the Bible. I always remember that John Calvin, one of the most prolific Christian theologians of all time, produced 
his commentaries. If you see them in our library, I have them at home. They're at least they're wider than the width of this pulpit desk. They're probably close to three feet. It's just his commentaries on the Bible. And he has other books of sermons and other publications besides those. It would probably go out as far as my arm reaches. And John Calvin did not leave us one word on the book of Revelation, the only book of the Bible he didn't comment on. Don't know why that was exactly. Lest you feel robbed of a series that probably some of you would have considered fascinating, I will tell you right now that I can do the whole series on Revelation right here and now. Two words is all we need. Some of you know this. Two words. You want to impress your Christian friends? Tell them you can interpret Revelation completely to them in two words. Jesus wins. That's it, folks. A lot of complications to get to that, but Jesus wins. Now, we've been looking at prominent Scripture portraits of Christ for 10 or so weeks past, and this morning I read two whole chapters that have a wonderful scene for you to take in and understand. And you realize, I think, that in a shorter than usual time on a communion Sunday, I am not going to even try to unravel the meaning of every individual symbol, pictorial symbol that is in this revelation given to John. We can't spend the time. What I want you to see is the big picture. There are reliable commentaries that will help you if you need to consult them about the details, but let's consider that we try to take in one big picture of two chapters, two very vital chapters. In fact, if somebody said, well, I don't know what I would say. If somebody said, what is the most important part of the book of Revelation? I would probably say, you have to be here. You have to get this part. Then there's other parts that are vitally important, of course. All of God's word is important. But this is the core. And this has to be understood in terms of its big picture of Christ today. A theme of Christ who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah here, but who is also God's slain Redeemer Lamb. Now, three previous chapters, I'm not going to go over that. You may know there are letters written to seven churches that John was the spokesman. This is the disciple John or the apostle John, same one who wrote the gospel. It is John who is given to communicate to seven real churches of that day to tell them ways in which they were falling away or failing or or needed encouragement or commendation or repentance in their day and time. And after that, the ending of those three chapters culminates in a verse most of you know, verse 320, where Jesus is heard or understood to say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him, eat with him, and he with me. Interesting. About a door. And then what do we have in four one? A door standing open in heaven. And John, as it were, is invited by the messenger of God, come up here and take a look and see what you can see. Here's John at a unique vantage point to see right into heaven. For some strange reason, I was reminded that while I was in seminary most of the summers, I was a house painter with a friend of mine. We worked in New England along the New England coast. And I can remember a number of times uh, working on big older houses in a coastal town where I would be way up as just about to the highest rung of a 40-foot ladder 
because these houses were two and a half, even three stories in some cases. And I would get up there and I would look out over the roof while I was painting and see the ocean. What a delight to have that glorious sight and sailboats and fishing boats in my, in my sights as I was painting the house. Happily, I didn't get distracted enough to forget what I was doing and fall off, but it's almost a wonder that I never did fall. But here John is told, I, I want you to see something. Come up here and tell people what you see. And, you know, we don't think about Revelation, I think, in the right frame of mind. We tend to think, oh, it's that very confusing, complicated book that everybody argues about and, and people have a different scheme to approach it with and different, you've got to decide first what millennial group you belong to and all of this. And people just sometimes turn away from Revelation in disgust. That's way too difficult. I'll never get it. Well, if you're a parent or maybe a grandparent, you know that one of the great delights of this world is reading to a small child. I've had that joy for years now. We have our youngest grandchild is now five, so she's right on the edge of being able to read herself, but still likes to be read to. And she'll bring a book over and park herself next to me or my wife. And to me, she says, Papa, read this book. And that's a command I always obey with joy. And you know what kind of book it is. It's probably a book uh, with prominent pictures, some text, which I'm supposed to read, but prominent pictures are there so that she could even get a good deal of meaning just from leafing through the book and seeing the story told by the pictures. I think that we don't realize that really this is what Revelation is. God has things to tell his church that he put in pictorial form because we're all infants in our understanding and not able to, to receive difficult things. So he said, here, let me give you a picture book of the culmination of all things so you can follow along in childlike pictures. Here we have a scene shown to John of the headquarters of the universe, the inner court of heaven containing the throne of God. What, what can be a more exalted picture that you could possibly imagine than to be shown the very throne of God? I want to tell you three things about this today. First of all, we readers are shown this privileged sight that the sovereign, holy God is worshipped at heaven's throne. There are actually, somebody's counted it, I didn't, but there are images of thrones that are spoken of 38 times in the book of Revelation, and 17 of those references are in these two chapters. So there's no mistaking that the throne of God and, su and subordinate thrones as well are very much a part of the message of these two chapters. And I would have you notice that someone, that's the quote, someone is seated on the throne. Chapter 4 doesn't tell us who someone is, but unless you're a real dunce, you figure it out. God himself is on this throne. He isn't described. It isn't told he looked like this, his face was this way, his beard was like this, his rope. No, he's not described. It's just someone on a throne, the description of which is so utterly brilliant and fantastic that clearly you're grasping at words to try to pull this into your mind. Precious jewels, the appearance of jewels have to be used. A rainbow completely around it. Twenty-four thrones, subordinate thrones, and 
We think probably the best speculation is the 24 elders described here are not those who serve communion on Sunday, but they're representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, men who lead the people of God on thrones themselves wearing white robes with gold crowns. And here we encounter these people serving their God, exalting their God, singing a song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This isn't about a particular moment in history that is there and then passed again. It's about an abiding reality that is now and forever constant. As human beings, human spiritual leaders worship God, we sang a reflection of that uh, hymn this morning as we began the service. If you thought about the words of what we sang, around the glassy sea, that's the sea referred to here in Revelation 4. Well, what was going on as people received this letter from John? Briefly, late 90s AD, we think is the best time. John was the last of the original disciples alive. He was under a kind of house arrest or isolation on an island of Patmos where he could not leave, but he could apparently communicate and send communication to others. And Emperor Domitian was on the throne, a cruel, proud man who demanded from others in the Roman Empire, all other people, if they weren't already Roman citizens, they were required to give an oath in which they would come. One of the ways of of showing the oath was to come and sprinkle a little bit of incense on a secular altar fire and say, Kurios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. That's what Domitian asked. And in many cases, if someone wouldn't give it or wouldn't say it, they were killed or jailed at least. That's where Christians were living, and many had been martyred already. But here we have what's happening in the throne room of God while this little puppet Domitian, who lived for a few years to strut around the earth, was saying, worship me, I am God. What we see is what Psalm 99 1 describe, where you can read, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble, not at Domitian, but at God, for he sits enthroned amid the cherubim. I think also of what 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, God dwells in unapproachable light, and he is one whom no one has ever seen nor can see. Isn't that consistent with what we read here? Somebody on the throne, no description given. Somebody. Well, who sits on a throne like that? I don't think you need to be told. The greatest being that there is sits on the throne of heaven. And where he is being worshipped, he is being lifted up. Human pride, political pretension is cast down. And no one has to tell the 24 elders or these strange fourfold beasts that I'm not going to go into at all, but they also are worshipping persons or beings. No one has to tell them, fall on your knees, fall on your face. Their knees know what to do. And they fall down. And they worship the greatest being that there is. Clearly, this God is weighty with dignity. Weighty with dignity and glory and splendor. 
And he didn't elect himself or put himself in there with a lot of false promises or something. He's there by the very virtue of who he is and what he is, the creator and father of all things. Now, we live in 2019 as Christians. We don't have anyone hauling us off to the Colosseum to fight with lions or be burned at the stake as John knew was happening in his day, but we certainly live in an era where people are on thrones of their own making, their own political positions. Don't we see it? Everybody's throne making right now. Everybody says, I want a throne. I can rule on a throne. And the line is growing long of those who think they can have or should have a throne. Well, the seat of real world power is not in those thrones that they want. It's not the Oval Office. It's not the floor of the Senate or the House. It's not the Kremlin. It's not the British Parliament. What we're being shown here pictorially, vividly, stunningly, is heaven's very throne, the nerve center from which our powerful, sovereign, holy God manipulates the levers of human history and the whole creation. A God who laughs at terrorists, a God who must be amused by North Korean nuclear weapons, knowing he could scatter them like a child's tinker toys if he chose to. The sovereign, holy God of Revelation 4 is the one who is worshipped at heaven's great throne, whether you and I consent to his rule or not. Now, a second movement here. Our text goes to chapter 5. I had to read them both together. Because this scripture is still speaking in symbols, I think because we are still simple-minded infants who need picture books, and he, we cannot be addressed in hard, complex theological words. We do better with pictures. So we have a picture. And look what happens right away in verse 1 of chapter 5. The only, the only description of anything about God as a person is what? A hand. A hand is stretched forth from the throne bearing a scroll. The scroll of an ancient document sealed seven ways written on both sides. We, if we try to construct what this is, we assume that there's an outer seal of wax and, and if you were the right person to open that, you might unroll a foot or so and read text and then break another seal and read some more text, another seal and read some more text. And, and the most important vital message was that contained in the innermost part of the scroll. Well, what is the scroll? Elsewhere, the book of Revelation talks about a book of life in which presumably are written the names of those who are the saved people of God from all eternity and those who are lost, those who, who will in the end spurn God and spurn His salvation. And the, the book delineates this will of God. What is written there are things that not just might happen in the future, but must happen. The plans and decrees of God, that's the best we know how to say. There's an element of mystery about this scroll, but certainly the knowledge of it is something that mankind wants to hear and wants to know, and only God can reveal it and make it known, and only the person whom he authorizes can make it known. All right, then we come quickly to the third movement of Revelation 4 and 5, and now the great drama 
drum roll. Christ, the wounded lamb, is the one counted worthy to unlock the scroll, unlock all the plans of God. A figure is announced here. And you know, people were looking around. John said, okay, who's going to be able, who's worthy? He was at, the question was asked by the angel, who's worthy to open the scroll? And John speaks his deep consternation because he looked about and nothing happened for quite a while. Nobody was found. Nobody stepped forward. Nobody volunteered. No one. And John was thinking, here's this scroll of knowledge. God himself is saying, everything you need to know is on this. And nobody's going to be able to read it. And John says he wept. He wept at the tension that was there, that nobody would be able to do that until one of the elders told him, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah and root of David has conquered. He can do it. Oh, what good news. Thank you, Lord. Where is this lion? And John and the others must have looked about and thought, a lion? What could be better? A ferocious beast that no man is ever going to stand up to. An animal with great strength and, and voraciousness and his tooth and claw can take down any enemy. Where is he? Let him step forward. We want to see him and celebrate him, this lion of the tribe of Judah. I hope I don't sound disrespectful to the Word of God when I say it's as if the people had been told, Superman is going to come. And suddenly, Clark Kent showed up. What? A lamb? Not just a lamb, a bloody lamb. A lamb that staggered and and looked like it was dying on its feet. What is this? This is not the hero figure that we need to announce the plans and secret purposes of God for all creation and salvation of men. But look what happens. Those gathered there, all those elders and those heavenly beings representing the animals of earth and man, they seem to know the significance of this one who steps forward. John didn't until he saw everybody suddenly bowing to the Lamb. They bowed low. And guess what? If you'll notice, they said the very same things in verse 9 and following to him that had been said to God in 4.11. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Some of you who come in and out of this building every Sunday, come in over here because this is the biggest parking lot. You come in, you sit down, you sing, and you go right out again. You never seem to guess that there are 75 or more Congolese former refugees at the other end of our building, worshiping God, representing every people and tongue and tribe and nation, speaking and singing in Swahili. You don't even come in touch because you're not in the middle of the building. That's too bad. You really ought to wander to that end of the building before you leave this morning and meet some of those. They don't speak our language real well, but they understand hello. They understand an outstretched hand. God is doing through the conquest of the Lamb 
the thing that he promised to do. He didn't need a lion to do it. And so up goes the song and the the elders and all the people that are there lift up this great song. Notice how it's described, the math of it. Myriads of myriads. I don't even know what kind of math that is. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Everything that we offered to God, the Creator, we offer to Him because He has done what the Creator designed that He would do. Revelation 4, you see, I want you to see this much of a basic fact without digesting every detail of these chapters. Revelation 4 is about giving glory to God as Father and Creator. Revelation 5 is about transferring that same glory that belongs only to God to Jesus Christ, the Lamb whom God sent to do His task among the nations. If you say, I can't comprehend much from the book of Revelation, I already gave you the two-word thing, Jesus wins, and this is how He wins. He wins by receiving the acclamation and the praise and the honor that belonged to God the Father, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be all these things. A young child among us can understand that as if it was a storybook. The throne of God, the honor given to God, the Lamb that was slain receiving that honor and carrying out what God sent him to do. Young children, in fact, can believe the good news that was on that scroll better than some adults because their faith hasn't been ruined by cynicism and pride. They come and they believe what they see and hear and what impacts their senses. Cynical adults sometimes are so wrapped up in intellectual conceit that they, oh, I I just can't believe all that fantastic stuff. And they cast it off, never knowing that God will cast them off at the end of time. The cross of Jesus Christ is seen as weakness. It actually is mighty power. The cross seems like foolishness to the world, but it was God's highest wisdom. The cross involved deep shame, but it revealed the glory of divine grace. The cross of the Lamb of God represented the curse of sin coming forth out of the Garden of Eden, but it it achieved eternal blessing and salvation for those who will receive and trust its benefit by simple, childlike, storybook faith. Worthy is God's Lamb because he achieved all this acclaim and all this fame and all this honor for you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this table, would you refresh in our minds the powerful thing that you did in Jesus Christ. The acclaim and the praise and the choruses and the elders and the wise of this world praising you at your control center at your very universal throne, we see is turned to Jesus. May we turn all that to him as well and trust him for what we need from him in our lives, salvation, wisdom, guidance, comfort, peace, rest. Thank you for such a Savior as this wounded lamb. 
Amen.